very happy last Sunday. I did not shake hands with people because I got just so, so sick on Monday. And uh, so I'm happy that we avoided all that. Um, I want to thank everybody who came to our Christmas party last night. By my count, throughout the night, we had about 61 people come to our Christmas party. And uh, thank you. Appreciate that. And especially, Carrie, Carrie's actually down in the nursery right now, but I want to thank her. She's really the one who, who did everything for it, for putting that together and, and making the food. And um, she's just really good with stuff like that. So I'm very, very appreciative of, of her. Um, yeah, Christmas Caroline tonight. Hope you can go. Um, I've never done that before. It's my understanding that you're supposed to ask for figgy pudding and <laughs> not go until. But chapter this morning is Isaiah chapter eight. Would you pray with me first, though? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this Christmas season, Lord, that we celebrate your Son coming into the world, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that light came into a dark world, and in that we rejoice. Lord, I pray for the Merkel family and the sudden passing of Ron last week. Lord, I pray for your nearness to them. The Bible says that you are near to the brokenhearted. And I pray for your nearness to this family today and in the coming days and weeks and months and years as grief and mourning those who we love is a process. Lord, I pray for our time in your word today. As always, I pray that it be edifying to us. I pray that it point us to you. I pray that it point us to your gospel. Lord, I pray that it point us to your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking through a series of events in the book of Isaiah at a time of war in Judah and its surrounding and the kingdoms that surrounded that nation. Just as a reminder, Judah was the kingdom of God's chosen people. It was home to Jerusalem and the monarchy who ruled, and it was that line, that family which led to Christ. But the monarchy was corrupt and wicked, yet they still had God's promises. As we've discussed, Assyria was the superpower in the region at the time. They were a ruthless regime, and Judah had paid off Assyria for protection. And as we've also talked about, we have two other kingdoms in this story, Israel and Syria, who had formed an alliance against Assyria, and they went to war against Judah as retribution for Judah's unwillingness to join their alliance. In last week's passage, we saw warnings of divine judgment on Israel and Syria for their attacks on Judah, but it would also warn of judgment against Judah for their dealings with the wicked and sinful Assyrians. And there will be more on that in this passage this morning. The king of Judah was a corrupt man named Ahaz. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God offered a sign to Ahaz, of a sign that would reveal his divine glory. And Ahaz turned it down. And that was first part, the first part of our series 
a sign rejected. While Ahaz didn't want a sign from the Lord, God gave him one anyway. And last week, we looked at the sign given, the famous verse quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign given to Ahaz of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child and calling his name Emmanuel ultimately points to Christ. Today, we continue in our series with part three, a sign delivered. An alternative title for this message could be the first Emmanuel. One of the points that I made last week was that When the sign of Emmanuel was given, I believe that that sign also had an initial fulfillment in the day of King Ahaz in our present passage. And we see the fulfillment of that this morning. And with that, let's jump right into the story. Verse 1, the prophet Isaiah is speaking in the beginning of the passage just from his perspective. Isaiah says, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it the common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So Isaiah is told to take this large tablet to write down this divinely given message. The significance of this action is that the word of the Lord here is not a mystery. It's not a secret. It's written down for all to see. And Isaiah is told to write belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. It's a Hebrew phrase or name, meaning quick to plunder, swift to spoil. And it's a reference to the impending judgment which will befall Syria and Israel, the nations who had gone to war with Judah, that they themselves would be plundered. While there would be immediate judgment on Israel and Syria, again, this passage also shows that there will also be judgment on Judah. Verse 2. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Uriah is the priest of King Ahaz. Zechariah is actually the father-in-law of Ahaz. And both of these men are told to be witnesses to what Isaiah has written. There's irony that Ahaz didn't want a sign, but was given a sign. And now people who are close to Ahaz and don't really have any loyalty to Isaiah are used by the Lord to become witnesses to what Isaiah had written. Verses 3 and 4. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The passage says Isaiah went to the prophetess. It's Isaiah's wife. We don't know if she was considered a prophetess or if that's just what she's called because she's married to a prophet. In any event, the prophetess conceived and bore a son. And the Lord commands Isaiah to name this child after the phrase he had previously commanded Isaiah to write down, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. 
which I always thought was a girl's name, but. <laughs> I believe that this specific baby is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy, the initial fulfillment. Just consider the language of this Emmanuel prophecy in chapter 7, where we were last week, and in our present passage in chapter 8. From last week's passage, Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Compared to this week's passage, Isaiah 8:3, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Both passages talk about the name. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Both passages talk about the earliest events in the life of these children. Isaiah 7, 15 and 16 says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And what that passage refers to are the kings of Judah, the two kings who Judah most fears, Israel and Syria, and the judgment that they would face. The passage foretells the destruction that they would face and how it would happen early in the life of this Emmanuel figure. And we see similar language in chapter 8, where it says, Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother. So when he's still really just in infancy, he can barely even talk. The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Damascus was the capital of Syria. Samaria was the capital of Israel. And so what that's saying is that the wealth of Damascus, the spoils collected by Samaria, that when this child is just a baby, that these will be carried away. They will be taken away by the Assyrians. So you have all of these similarities between the sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7 and between the birth of Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, in chapter 8. It's because that child is Emmanuel. God is faithful to his promise. What God has said will happen, happens. As we've already mentioned, this passage talks of the judgment which will befall Israel and Syria. In verse 5, though, we have a, a transition in the narrative. Isaiah speaks again, but the focus shifts from the judgment of Israel and Syria and focuses on the judgment that Judah would also face. And for that reason, I think the passage can perhaps be a little bit confusing because you have nations who are judged for going to war with Judah, but then Judah is also judged. Ultimately, it's because all of them are in the wrong. Judah was not innocent in this. God was faithful to his people in Judah, but there were still consequences for their sins. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Again, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. 
passage makes a seemingly obscure reference to waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Here, the gently flowing water is a metaphor for the work of God. God's provision often appears to be simple and ordinary. Judah has refused God's care for them. Instead, they had turned to Assyria for protection. It's often so easy to undermine what God has done because it's oftentimes not grand and spectacular. Yet here we are. And God has gotten us here. But it can be so easy to take it all for granted. To focus on the difficulties, the times where things didn't work out the way we wanted. The work of God is compared to a gentle stream. But the passage talks about the work, talks about the Assyrians and compares them to a raging river. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the, to the breadth. Again, I realize these passages do use a lot of imagery and metaphors, um, but I don't think what's being said here is really such a complicated idea. Again, Judah had paid off Assyria for protection. So what the passage is saying is that for Judah, for God's chosen kingdom, it was easier to put their faith in the river than the stream. It was easier to put their faith in Assyria and their protection than in God's protection. It was easier to trust what was right in front of them than who was right above them. Because it's so easy to be awestruck by the power in the world and to forget about God. Because God so often is the gentle stream. Judah had God's promises, his faithfulness throughout the generations, his provision. They had a, a new sign that God had given to them. God with us. But the king insisted in putting his trust in himself, in his diplomatic skills, in what he could do in making a deal with the Assyrians. We too have God's faithfulness. He's the same God today as he was in the book of Isaiah. He's the same God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the same God who called Abraham. He's the same God who sustained his people as they wandered in the promised land. And he's the same God who promises grace and forgiveness through his son. But so much of life is not the big grand moments. It's the little things, the little ways God is working that oftentimes we don't even see or pay attention to. But God is faithful. He's faithful to all of that. If you're here today, you're a testimony to God's provision. That's not to say that it was always easy. That's not to say that things have always worked out the way that you wanted them to. 
But that if you're here today, he's ultimately given you what you've needed. Maybe not what we always wanted, but he always gives what we need to accomplish his purposes. And if you're in Christ, you have his promises. You have God Almighty. You have the promise of his love, the promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that he's with you, that he's for you. Yet, we so often act like that's not enough. We so often trust the river over the stream. We so often want to trust in our own maneuvers and activity. We so often want to trust the world over God. We still so often want to trust political leaders, like that's where our hope is. When the true impact of history and humanity is the sovereign will of God, who is sovereign over all of creation. We often want to focus on our circumstances and not on our God, on our challenges and not on the Lord. It's tempting to want to trust the river. But the gentle stream of the Lord continues to flow. Again, there's so often simplicity in the work that God is doing. But that's so often not what we want. In the Bible, God almost never uses the mightiest people to do his work. He promised to propagate his people through a couple who were so old that the text says that they were as good as dead. He chose to get his law through a man who had a speech impediment and didn't want to do it. He chose the ignored younger brother to be the great king in the Old Testament. Through those impossible situations, God was working his plan. I think about the advent of Christ as coming in the world. It's the same qualities that surround his advent. His parents weren't anything special. Ordinary people, ordinary names, Mary and Joseph, common names at the time. Jesus wasn't born in a flashy place like Rome or Jerusalem. He was from an obscure village. So obscure that people barely had ever heard of it during his ministry. The king of kings came into the world and instead of being surrounded by servants who tended to him and bowed down to him, he was surrounded by barn animals. Instead of a castle, he was born in a manger. The people who were the first to hear the message weren't rulers. They were shepherds. This is how the second Emmanuel came to be with us. God with us. For Judah, they trusted the Assyrians. Again, it's easy to judge them for that. And they were wrong. But it's also easy to understand the temptation. Because it's so much easier to be impressed by the river than the stream. It's so much easier to be amazed by the apparent power that we see. You all know that I'm a sports fan. It can be easy to look at dominating teams in sports and think that they're just going to be good forever. They're not. The dynasties come to an end. It's easy to look at the top companies in the world today, companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, and to think that they're indestructible. But I think about companies like Woolworths, Chrysler, Oldsmobile, Blockbuster, Pan Am, TWA. The mighty have fallen. It's easy to look at the nations of the world and to think that they'll always be powerful. I think it's easy to think that about America. 
There's no divine right that America will always have this standing in the world. Less than 100 years ago, the British Empire was the largest empire in human history, controlling over one-fourth of all the land in the world. It was the empire in which the sun never set. Or I think more recently, in the mid-1980s, if you'd been told that the Soviet Union was on the brink of collapse, that might have seemed impossible. But for every unsinkable ship, there's an iceberg. And the most apparent examples of the might in the world are no match for Almighty God. Judah rejected the stream. They did not want God. But again, before we judge them too harshly, It's so easy for us to fall into the same traps, even people who go to church. We often treat prayer like it's a waste of time and ineffective. We so often busy ourselves, exhaust ourselves, trying to make things happen, trying to control our situations, instead of just walking with God and trusting in God. We so often focus on our challenges and not on our God. In our passage, it says of the Assyrians, it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Talking about this metaphorical flood of the Assyrians, where it says that it'll flood Judah up to the neck. The point of what that's saying is that Assyria will come just short of destroying Judah. That happened in 701 BC. Jerusalem was under siege by Assyria. Many of the outlying territories had been conquered by Assyria. Really, the only reason why they didn't totally get destroyed was the grace of God. The Assyrians certainly had the ability to do it. God protected Jerusalem. But he did let them suffer. Jerusalem and Judah ultimately the nation that they put their hope in became their tormentor. Again, it's easy to see where they're wrong. That's oftentimes how it is in the Bible. It's easy to see other people's mistakes. But we have lifetimes of God's faithfulness and goodness, and we still still so often struggle to trust him too. Let us see God working in our lives. Throughout time, in both the big things and the small things. In our passage this morning for Judah, there were consequences. And they were just. God's judgment is always just. So they would suffer under the Assyrians. But I think the passage ultimately ends on a hopeful note. We see the negative aspect, the Assyrian invasion... But suddenly, the story changes, and the prophet again makes reference to Emmanuel in verse 8, where he says, Its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. I've been saying that Isaiah's son is the first Emmanuel, but it makes no sense that this passage at this point is referring to him, where it talks of, it being his land. Meher Shalal Hashbaz is just a baby. It's not his land. It's God's land. And when verse 8 refers to Emmanuel, 
It makes the most sense that he's referring to the second and greater Emmanuel to come, Jesus. Judah trusted Assyria, and they lived out the consequences of their decisions. But that didn't mean that Assyria was just. They weren't. They too would be held accountable for their own sins. Again, I know that it can be confusing because you have Israel and Syria judged for going to war against Judah and then Judah judged for trusting Assyria. But all of them were guilty. While Judah would pay dearly for their sins, God was still ultimately faithful. God was still with them. In several ways, this week's passage and last week's passage really have a lot of similarities. Both focus heavily on divine judgment of Israel, Syria, and Judah. Really, the the major difference is that when the Emmanuel prophecy is given in chapter 7, it's something that's still a few years away. But we come to chapter 8, and it's on the doorstep. The passage takes us into the delivery room. And the passage ends by talking of God's faithfulness to Judah. Even though God has judged them, they're still his chosen people. The last two verses of our passage, verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, starting to talk about nations outside of Judah. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Repeats the same phrase twice for emphasis of the destruction that will ultimately also come on those who attack God's kingdom, God's people. Take counsel, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. It's a play on words at the end of the passage. Again, the name Emmanuel means God with us, and the passage ends by saying God is with us. A reminder that God is with his people. The plans to thwart God's promises will all be thwarted. God is with us. God is continually faithful. Again, I know that there's a lot of judgment in these passages in the book of Isaiah. But the thing to really take away is God's continued grace to his people. That yes, there was suffering, all of it justified because of their sin. But God continues to be just. And he continues to be gracious. It's the same way in the lives of people who trust in Jesus. That we continue to sin and to struggle, but God continues to be faithful and gracious and loving. That we can't get it right on our own. That it's entirely God's grace and trusting in his son. And in that, God is with us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your Son. We so often fail and fall in so many ways. We so often don't trust you. We so often want to put our hope in ourselves and those around us. Lord, let us be people who do walk with you and trust in you and believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.